It's Primus Tracks with Josh, Frankie, and Soya. What a couple of dumb shits. Hello, primates. You found Primus Tracks. Congratulations. We are at Primus Tracks on Instagram and Twitter. I am Josh, and coming to us from Primus Tracks Towers in Mexico City is Frankie. Hi, Josh. Hey, hey. And we also have with us, from his secure bunker in an undisclosed location, Tim Sawyer. Good Lord. I turned my mic down. I'm okay now. I don't know how I pulled pulled my buddy brain into this thing last week, but whatever. <laughs> I was too loud, Josh. Dang it. I turned my mic down. Yep, it's we, great to be back. I can't wait to get on to the next album. Here we go. And we are. We're talking about the Brown album. Uh, we're going to get to that in a second, but uh, we do have somebody with us who's going to help with the music today as we journey into the Brown album. His name is Life. Life, welcome to Primus hey, Tracks. How's it going? Hey, all right, man. Thanks for joining What's us up, from, from the wilds of Canada. First of all, what is your path to Primus? It seems like you also have an interesting connection to Tim Sawyer. I heard Primus on the Beavis and Butthead CD. Oh, yes. In like mid-late 90s. Poetry and prose. Yeah, yeah, poetry and prose. I kind of stole my brother's friend's CD and made a dub of it without him knowing. (laughs) And and then, yeah, that was my introduction to Primus. And then heard them on the Tony Hawk's Pro Skater a couple years after that. Which would have been Jerry was a race car driver, right? That's right. Yeah, man. How old were you at the time? Like 10. Oh, man. Yeah, (laughs) nice. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. Boy, they started you early. Wow. You whippersnappers yeah. in your video games, too. That one that one passed me by. I never had a PlayStation or anything like that. That was time. actually the only video game I had. I will have to say that I never played that video game. I only have read that in the Wikipedia. It's the only reason why I know <laughs> it was that song. <laughs> I don't play video games, dude. I would like to acknowledge that if you're like me and you've gone into the deep end of YouTube looking for full show recordings of Primus, it's very likely at some point you have watched a recording from Life. I just want to give major props to you, Life, for those amazing recordings that you do. Um, the Thanks, audio man. is always on point. The video is fantastic. And you have captured some really legendary shows that if it weren't for you, you know, there would be no document available for many fans to enjoy. I've been taping just about every concert I've seen for... 16 years so oh that's rad dude man yeah but he but he makes good quality recordings i mean he makes the kind of stuff that you can sit back and watch on your screen and enjoy excellent audio yeah thanks man yeah where can we find those live uh i've got a youtube channel called dead perspective tons of live (laughs) shows and my own mediocre music and uh Yeah, absolutely. I have visited your YouTube channel quite a bit of regularity since we started this podcast to mine for material. Nice. I haven't credited you yet, but there you go. Appreciate it. Yeah, and then actually when I met Soya, I was recording another band, uh, Roger Waters, in Rome of all places. Oh, you got the show. You captured it. Yeah. Nice. And okay. so my friend and I were just kind of walking around Circus Maximus. I saw Soya put the twang hat on. So. Yeah. Did you know you were talking to Soya though? Yeah. Oh, right on. You knew you knew that it was me when you met me. I knew me? it was yeah. I think we were Facebook friends or something at the time. Oh, I think so, actually. Yeah. You're right. And you <laughs> yeah. said that, right. And of course I turned around and said Primus sucks and said, What's up, bro? Let's yeah. talk for a second. I'll tell you whatever you want to know, real quick, just like I do with Frankie when I met him. Or yeah. I did with Frankie yeah. when I met him. Yeah. So- I'm always eager to talk to the Primus fans. Come on. So life, life. That's that's really interesting. I mean, why did you pick Rome? That's yeah. really cool. Well, basically, a, a Primus friend of mine from the Bay Area was. We were both on European vacations at the time, or we were we were planning to be on. And uh, I love that movie. Sorry, yeah, Chevy Chase. <laughs> I don't love that movie. Come on, that movie. Uh, anyway, um, so we decided. Well, let's meet up at this Roger Waters show because we were both going to be in Italy. Roughly the same time. So wow, that's man. pretty cool. That all came together nice. I changing to be changing walking, snare drums just every happened. Song. To, yeah. Did yeah. you see that? Life yeah. did yeah. Was, I'm the only <laughs> one allowed on stage on the Roger Waters tour. Oh yeah, I wanted to ask <laughs> if you caught him on video. You must have if he's running out there to change it. Uh, I think <laughs> I think I've got a clip from Vancouver where you can see. I'm him. pretty pretty sneaky, man. I wear all black and I got a black hat. I sneak up there and me and Joey have our routine. It's yeah. very, very sly. <laughs> 
You'd be well, hard pressed to find me in a blurry video. Well, yeah. we are here to talk about Primus, of course, and we are uh, opening up the Brown album. I don't know if you guys know this, but of course, it was packaged like a candy bar. So we're gonna, and when I say you guys, I'm talking about listeners. <laughs> All of us in this room know. Uh, so we're gonna unwrap it and take a big old bite out of uh, the return of Southington Willoughby today. He's back. You might remember him from albums such as Frizzle Fry. We're going to learn more about Southington Willoughby. Frankie, though, do you have some live history on this track for us? Oh, it's really brief, Josh. Um, this okay. is a big time. It's a big time rarity. It's only been performed six times in Primus history. And all six performances steam from the 2012 3D tour. Really? Which is now something legendary. So the last <laughs> performance to date took place on October 27, 2012 at the Murat Theater in Indianapolis, which is a pretty famous show for having a ton of deep cuts in the set list. Wow. Um, something remarkable about the track when it was performed live, I mean, I, I'm sure that nobody expected this song to be performed live at any point. So you can you can hear the reaction during the, the first time that they did it. I mean, people were absolutely blown away. And something unique about it is that it was performed at a much faster tempo than the studio recording. Um, Les is, you know, he's going through the wars pretty quickly and it's all over in three minutes. Who was playing drums on all these these versions? Jay Lane. On all of them, okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't remember them ever playing this with Brain live because. No, they skipped it completely during the the Brown era. Yeah, I was curious about that because I hadn't looked this one up. So if we're talking only six documented live performances, it is uh, about as rare as it gets. Wow. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the Brown album marks the first Primus album where several songs were either not performed during the promotional tour or never performed at all. Mm -hmm. Wow. Maybe they should call it the black and white album then because some yeah. – no, that was stupid. All right. But um, so – well, that's interesting because then I, I did bring up at least one live cut from that 2012 tour. And I don't know. Are we going to play some later, Frankie? Yeah, you can cue it at the end. It will be cool to hear. Okay. I was going to bitch and moan about the envelope filter now, but I'll wait till later. <laughs> uh, we do have a couple of interesting covers to to check out later too. I'm bound to determine, everybody, to find at least one cover of every Brown album tune. And I mean by a band, not just somebody sitting around plunking around on a bass. And I guarantee it will irritate Tim Sawyer. I think it's more like a maze that somebody in a band chose this song of all prime <laughs> songs. I mean, you got to find the obscure tracks and try to go for it. But yeah, I, I am very eager to hear this track you have found, Josh. Right on. <laughs> Well, let's talk about the return of Southington Willoughby. I mean, for me, just in general, uh, this, I suppose, is the this is the new Primus statement that they're making with the opening of the album. Mm -hmm. But given the lyrical content, too, it kind of works as uh, when we really get into that part. It's interesting because it almost works for me as a demented fanfare <laughs> when we get into the bass riffs and the guitar riffs. But then right. it's interspersed with this weird imperial march while Les is delivering the quote unquote speech. So there's a lot going on in this track life you're here man you're an accomplished musician who uh by your own admission makes mediocre music so can you tell us more <laughs> uh about what's going on musically in this track because there are these two distinct parts the the parts during the speech and then the musical interludes where the marching band is being weird i guess yeah it's almost it almost comes across like a like a psa yeah it sounds like Les has got some like phaser vibe Type pedal going on, like modulation. I cannot disclose what pedal he's using on that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, like the live versions they did were on the four string bass, but yeah. of course it sounds much gnarlier on a six string. Before you even start playing, I want our listeners to know that you, Life, have won the award already for having the creakiest chair in Primus Tracks history. So. <laughs> I was afraid of that. Seems like there was a lot of the fretted six string bass on that album. Yeah. On all of his albums, god damn it. Yeah. <laughs> because Should of Tim be. Sawyer. <laughs> That's right. So yeah, it just opens up with the uh on D. Yeah. And then it kind of switches starts on the higher octave and then switches down. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, man. Sounds that's basically good. the whole song right there. Yeah, yeah. So that's are, you the playing, are you playing the B string at all? The yeah. low B? So when then, it goes to the lower octave, that's the D note. The live versions of 2012, he starts up uh, yeah. high, really high on the neck yeah. to get a high D, and then he goes down to like the fifth fret or something. Um, why, why, do you think, why do you think he sped it up for the live performance? Uh, was it a J thing or was it because of Liz? I mean, probably just to hammer through it. <laughs> Let's get this shit over with. <laughs> no, I think you're onto something there because at, at album speed, it kind of plods because Brain's on that kick the entire time that just pounded. It's fine, right? But in a live setting, yeah, you probably want to kick it up a notch and, and make it I don't know, danceable or movable or groovable or something, I suppose. Well, you have to know that Primus never play to a click. Yeah. You know, like it's live. So, you know, you get around bands that play to the tempo of the record and there's a click and there's keyboards and there's video or whatever the hell. It kind of constrains you and you have to to be in that format, you know, mm -hmm. of that tempo. And with Primus, it, it went up and down and up and down over the years with all the songs. You know, you've heard Tommy the Cat slow and you've heard Tommy the Cat breakneck speed with brains sometimes <laughs> yes. you know it's That's like right. there's no click and and they never want that they they will never do that you know so yeah. you get what you get depending yeah. on what the feel is for the tour you know or the moment you know yeah and i mean i'm guessing that based on the very few performances they did you know maybe it was something that they just wanted to try out for curiosity but then they realized that ah you know it's not maybe it's not so enjoyable to play or it's not working <laughs> and they just let it go or the yeah. crowd were like deer in the headlights. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, when Frankie said the, the crowd, that it blew their minds, I wondered maybe the lights actually went off in some people's heads. Like, <laughs> I don't know this one. But, you know, I don't know. You don't know. Probably 50-50. Um, I would think so, yeah. And Life, yeah. I wanted to follow up because you're playing that riff and it sounds really good and it sounds really funky. And it also sounds really less clay pooly, but there are a lot of hammer-ons and pull-offs. So, you know, for you having played a lot of Primus and Claypool tunes throughout the years. I mean, is it a kind of a typical less riff or is he doing something a little different here? Yeah, it's kind of, it's pretty typical. It's just like a boxy, boxy riff it goes from like just basically two frets apart. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, you start on a higher D, fifth fret, and then go down to the low B on a D note. And uh, I mean, it's I'd say it's one of the easiest songs you can learn, really. Oh, really? Yeah. At least in a Primus regard. In, the, in terms of Primus. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Speaking of that, it sounds like you got some effects on there and, you know, it's probably not exactly what Les did. But what are you putting on there to approximate that sound right now? Uh, I've got a little bit of compression going into uh, Boss Adaptive Distortion, which is like a out of print pedal. Got a little bit of uh, Univibe going on nice 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 you know going back through these tracks and as we have of course week by week i'm going back and listening to them with with nicer headphones for the first time so there's a lot that i missed uh throughout the years listening to it in a car stereo or on my dorm room stereo or what have you but uh, it sounds like in one channel we can hear those thumps and plucks really well and then we're hearing a lot of that effect uh, that you described life in in another channel. So like I feel him playing it in the left channel, but then I feel that kind of echo across to the right channel. So I'm not sure exactly how it's being mixed, but I do hear it two different ways. And I would imagine, and Soya, you can probably back this up. He didn't double track that, right? Um, Doesn't sound like it. Didn't really ever double track anything. Yeah. Know? It was always, he played the part, you know? Lur Some, would double track uh, stuff mostly, you know? Some like the the vibe pedal I have is stereo. Okay. So. No, that would make sense then that you get that stereo effect from it, and it's and it's pretty cool because it it takes you to do a different uh, atmosphere or a different place, especially with with uh, earbuds in or those big cans on your head because it's uh, it's surrounding you to a degree, and that's kind of cool because we're we're talking about this this recording on vintage equipment and it's all blown out and it sounds like something from the 1890s as opposed to the 1990s, but we're still getting well, these cool. Well, none of the equipment was vintage. It just was new school versions of vintage stuff, you know, oh. like we had the Amec big board, which was a brand new Neve console style. It was like this smaller version of a Neve with okay. all the components of it. And we had the brand new Tascam uh, 16 track one inch tape, which we only had 15 tracks because track 16 had to be time code to have one track to track that into the computer 
of the AMEC big board that we used. Okay. You know? So we basically only had 15 lines to do oh, wow. any basic tracking. So one mic for the drums really frees up a lot of other stuff. So one mic for the drums, <laughs> one mic for the bass, and Lur Maybe had one every, other Lur, bass channel. Lur had everything else, man. Wow. <laughs> okay. So you guys really, you know what I'm saying? It. I mean, yeah. it was it was a really bizarre situation as far as recording goes, but it was all homegrown, you know. And Les was creating it. It was cool. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it, it does sound great. So how about the how about that guitar part? What are we what are we seeing there? Life? I think Larry's doing some some interesting things, um, in those different parts. Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe I'm alone on this, but uh, to me, it sounds like he's playing Saber Dance by Aram Kachaturian. Man, I love that song. Lur yeah, that, loves that song. I've actually. always associated that those really? two together. Okay, but I have to say, I'll tell you, life. Me and Lur dug through many a bins at record stores in the. 25 cent bin down yeah. on the ground to find fun stuff like that. <laughs> Me and him were both big purveyors of that goofy kind of music. And oh, I love Sa- it. Saber Dance is some awesome stuff, man. Yeah. I never put that together. I'm going to have to listen to it again and, and think about that. Yeah. I mean, I'll play the part and then see if he can high or something. But... <laughs> now, I think you're looking for oil for that stool. That's, what's going on. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I, I heard it today for the first time and seriously over 20 years and I've, I've got to get a good copy of it and listen to it again, you know, and with all these songs, as we go through them, I, I have to get my head together on it. So I'm sorry I didn't this time, but just what I could hear of Lur, it's a great guitar part. Like he really stands out in that part, you know, or in the song with his part. Yeah. And he's got plenty of space to work uh, given that, you know, essentially what I'm noticing throughout the, almost the entire track is brain is just sitting on the kick with one foot really quietly touching the hi-hat with yeah. the other foot. And then he's, uh, yeah. And then he's ro- rolling around on Tom's Tom's, excuse me here yeah. and there. So there, there is a lot of room to fill and Larry's, um, doing some really interesting things there. So yeah, I can't wait to hear and see what you do there life. I remember an interview with Larry where he said the EBS octobase was his oldest pedal that he had. Yeah. So I'm, I'm guessing he was using that back in those days. But he sounds like he's got some sort of octave going on. Okay, to pitch everything down. <laughs> Lur always had an octave. Yeah, uh, the best octave he ever had. I, I don't know if he still had it on this recording. Was the the Butron octabase? Yeah, it's a good one. Which, Hard to find. He had an original one, and we were using it on the Punchbowl tour. And by the time we got to this recording, I think he might have used it on the recording. That might be what he's using. But it definitely went off the pedal board because it was such a rare pedal. Yeah. It, it did not belong on the road anymore. It went into the cabinet, you know? Yeah, I've just got a EHS, EHX pitchfork that I got off a of junkie for 20 bucks. So. Oh, man. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's then, some... I, rem- I remember seeing those EBS pedals. They were black with the blue print on them, right? That's right, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, it uh, starts off... <laughs> Hey, I yeah. hear the saber dance. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's totally unrelated, but that's always what it's. I'm I'm gonna have to say, life, you are correct. That's probably a straight ripoff of saber dance by Lur. That's awesome. I never put that together. That's awesome. You put that together. Yeah, we're seeing you on video do this, but that tapping, I didn't realize that he was tapping and then and then dragging that right index finger up uh when he was doing that i always thought there was some left hand action going on there on the record but that's all right hand so he's doing some really cool tapping on there and then during the verse are you hitting a tritone there because that's it really sounds like it which would be a yeah yeah it's like they um I don't know. I'm not good with music terms but sure. you gotta, sure looks you like gotta a ask johnny from the special he'll tell you it's demonic minor 
Yeah, yeah. something like that. <laughs> That's yeah. what it sounds like for sure. That has a lot of body to it. And sometimes when, it, just personally to me, when I'm listening to Primus Records and then see how the guitar parts are actually played, I think, man, it doesn't necessarily, maybe I'm not hearing all those notes on the record, and maybe it's how it's mixed and maybe the production values, but Larry's doing a lot. Um, and he's he's taking up a lot of space there. Uh, and doing a lot of cool stuff. And he's he's doing things that maybe sound simpler than they look sometimes. And I think that's part of what he does so well. So yeah. it's it's cool to see you do that because it's kind of busy. You've got a lot to do there, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, and you're kind of switching between... You're switching between using a pick and then tapping and going in and out of that. So Just to get this contrast, like you said earlier, of the uh, that march marching part uh, during the speech... And then you get this kind of cool, funky thing. But we still have that, just that drum beat under the entire thing. So it doesn't change uh, too radically, but we definitely get a different vibe from the bass and, gu- and the guitar between the two. And I think that's really important given the lyrical content uh, and the mood, I guess, that's being established here. So that's really cool. I appreciate you showing us that. It looks like a lot of fun to play. It is. Well, it's sure. not Lurland, so you can do it. Yeah, that's the other thing. Like, there's no, uh, there's no Lurland solo in this track, which is uh, somewhat surprising. I mean, you do get little bits and pieces of him doing things differently um, and sliding around and doing some stuff. But yeah, we don't necessarily go to Lurland here, which is uh, interesting. I mean, that really this makes is, sure, makes this, it so this that the vocals kind of are predates the, the Lurland moment, though. You know, Brown album Lur has still had not found his drop off moment where Les jammed it out and said, "Lur, go." Oh sure, sure, yeah. You know, this kind of predates Lurland, so I think they start getting into it on the on the subsequent tours because you know, with mm-hmm. evidence from things like videoplasty, it seems like they were starting to go there a little bit with the Lur Santana thing. So yeah, with Groundhog's Day, <laughs> yes, yeah, that started during this era. That's right. Yeah, it seems mm-hmm. to have started party time too. Yeah, yeah, yeah on the Rhinoplasty release, right? That ninety-seven New Year's Eve is one uh, that we have. So good lord. <laughs> so there's a lot of cool stuff going on uh throughout and and you know brain is driving it of course with that kick and then he really gets to start to let it rip in the last i'd say minute minute and a half and he's doing so much syncopated stuff and it just sounds like he's doing whatever he wants you know just hitting all kinds of stuff not even caring about time too much because he's keeping it with his foot uh so kind of really kind of cool stuff there as it starts to fall apart uh but i really do think that uh, the focus here is is the vocal delivery and the lyrics. So before I go there and start ranting, do you guys have any last thoughts on the music? After listening to it a little bit today, I definitely remember this song was just kind of a made-up jam, and it mm-hmm. kind of became something after the fact. You know, like Brain played that beat, Les came up with that bass lick, and just whatever. Then he decided to do that rant over it, you know. It was not a well-thought-out song. It just became the <laughs> that intro, you know. Oh, it's kind of cool oh, though, that, it be, that, it. that it was that way, and then just with that open space of uh, Larry doing that that guitar part with the, just the crunchiness, and Les just hitting a note and letting it waggle in the wind, I guess, for lack yeah. of a better term, uh, yeah. that he had the space and just went, I'm going to make a speech out of this. That's really cool, because it's, yep. uh, it's certainly different uh, than what we normally get, even from Primus. This is the, the first one where it's just essentially a spoken word delivery as opposed yeah. to a narration excuse me and in the in the context of the album it works perfectly maybe it's a it's a strange song to stick in the middle of a primus playlist but when you hear the brown album as a full experience i think it's a perfect opener i can't think of any other track on the album opening i mean it just works amazingly as a transition between that and the next song I'm going to say that that I was surprised that this was the opener because mm. it's very dirge and there's nothing going on. Like, well, it's like Josh said, it's like a statement. It's like this is the new sound, like this is a new direction the band is going to. And I think the song works really great making that statement, which brings me to to a question regarding the, you know, the, the final noise at the end of the track. Uh, what do you think that sure. is meant to convey? Sure. It's a, it, well, it sounds like a boot stomping down onto, you know, a wood plank, practically. Uh, I think for what it conveys is it it's just this sudden ending to this to this experience, as though maybe somebody's... <laughs> I wanted it to be Elvis shooting out a TV, but, it, you know, <laughs> it's close enough, right? It's just this, this sudden ending to this experience, whether the crowd's been dragged away, or maybe Southington Willoughby was shot. Right. I don't know. <laughs> so there's a, there are a lot of interpretations to that, but it does have that that very interesting way of 
of ending uh, so suddenly, and then we're into the next track. Yeah, that's a great point. Or it's definitely a bold move to come out with a new drummer with Primus, and that's the first thing that you're going to hear as a Primus fan. This, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like not like, all right, motherfuckers, we're still killer. Here we go. It's like this crazy weirdo, dark jam with some, you know, speech that's going on. Yeah, it's trippy. I'm not saying I don't like it. I'm just saying it's a very odd choice. You know, Frankie, you said you don't hear another song that could have been the opener, but I'm I was perplexed that 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 was the opener to the record. But I always thought it was a great sort of build up, just sort of priming you for the rest of what's to come i mean i think that's what les was thinking was like we're gonna get this nothingness going on that's something <laughs> but nothing and then all of a sudden it ends clunk and then the next song kicks in you know? it's like it's uh warming up your ears for just yeah. the whole sound of the album you get yeah. the brown sound yeah and it's brown and it's dark and it's yeah. terrible i think <laughs> i think brown. that's a great point it's it is we there's new drummer new vibe uh, new recording setup that's like nothing anybody's ever heard at this point, and that's a lot to take in. So why not give them something they can kind of chew on? I don't know without having to process the music too, if that makes sense. Because right. I we can hear these slabs, the A slab and the B slab, and we know mm-hmm. it's coming, but we're still trying to tune our ears to this record because it sounds so strange. It's impossible to know as like a you know gold and platinum record selling band when they get to this point in their career. We're taking a shift over here with a new third of the band. It's completely different. And here's what we're going to sell you as our opening track. You know, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's bizarre but, to me, but it's cool. I mean, I just, I just want to point out one more thing. Since Naga Hive, Primus has accustomed fans to playing albums in their entirety. But Brown Album, as I said, is the first one in their catalog where they just skipped a lot of tracks completely for the first time. It makes me wonder if they rehearsed them at some point and they figured that they just didn't translate well live or maybe from the get-go, you know, when they made the songs, they they figured they would just fill up the album, but they were not things that they would perform live. I mean, it's a strange situation because up to that point, they had performed every single song from their mm-hmm. album's life. And with Brown Album, you have stuff like this one, which was never performed by this lineup. And not Frankie, every band. as always, you're building fact on speculation (laughs) and that's not what's going on dude Um, Uh, brain brain left the band and they never got back to it and as brain said in our interview with him his dream is to do the brown album in its entirety with the holy mackerel opening up and you know (laughs) that would be the most apropos thing to do to bring the brown album out is like you gotta get to that era you know yeah yeah uh life i smuggle you in for that show by the way I mean, Frankie, you, you can assess or agree on the Wonka tour when they were doing, uh, what was the song in the end? Uh, you know, and Mike Dillon would take a solo and, and Tim would do the solo back and forth was awesome. You know, I mean, it's, it's not impossible that they could do those songs. It's just that. I think you know, you're thinking of Duchess, but yeah. Duchess, they were doing yeah. Duchess was the one with the solos. Yeah. But what I'm saying, Frankie, is that Les has got it in the back of his brain. He's going to wait until that moment he wants to do it. You know, mm. it's not that it's not possible or they don't want to do it. It's going to happen when it happens, you know, when Les decides mm. it's going to happen. It seems like it's more standard for, for a touring band. Uh, and Primus, of course, doesn't adhere to too many standards because they do what they want. But it seems mm-hmm. more of a standard to record a new album, pick the best five, six or seven tracks. And those are the ones you're going to showcase as you tour to promote that yeah. album. That's what it seems. And and it seems like that that's what the band kind of stuck with uh, for the Brown album tour, which is actually uh, uh, unusual for them. They're doing shorter sets too. Like Right. Horde, was it Horde Festival or something they did a lot of? and. We yeah. did the whole the whole first tour with Brain was the Horde tour. Yeah. yeah. So they're doing what, 60, 70 minutes or something like that? I yeah. think we only got 60 minutes, if that, on that one. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, in, in that yeah. context, with a short set, I mean, yeah. they were playing the singles every night for sure. They were playing, you know, the songs the crowd was familiar with, like Tommy, Jerry, stuff like that. So, yeah, that I guess that doesn't leave a lot of space for, for the deep cuts mm-hmm. of the album. Yeah. Also playing them super fast so you can jam as many in as you can, which is great. Yes, I course. love that. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting to, when we were on the Horde Tour. Uh, so when you get to a song like The Return of Southington Willoughby, which is the opener of the album, 
you only have 60 minutes or 45, 50 minutes on a horde tour when you're coming out. You got to bust out the couple tunes that are killer, right? Shake hands with beef or over the falls or whatever, you know? You can't waste your minutes because you got to cram the other tunes in there that are the hits. And more importantly, on the horde tour, you're not playing to a Primus fan base. Oh, you're sure. playing to a horde tour fan base. And that's why Primus got on that was they were trying to mix up a, a bill like a Lollapalooza or whatever, you know, and the horde tour tried to steer away from doing just the same old widespread panic and blues traveler and whatever bands that was the same damn tour every year. They tried to mix it up and got Primus on there to liven it up. And like, let's get some new vibes in here, you know, but you cannot play a song like the return of Savings and Willoughby on the horde tour. You're not going <laughs> to capture anybody with that, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like shake hands with beef into the awakening. Okay, you're gonna capture those guys with that, you know. <laughs> it's like Right, yeah, that'll get some attention. Yeah, yeah. So no, I don't a- know. When it gets to like the, the Brown tour, of course they're gonna open it up and they're gonna play some stuff. And Frankie, it's it's amazing to me that they actually played the song live with Jay Lane because <laughs> it's really was just a, a filler song that became the opener to the record, you know. Uh well let's talk the vocals and lyrics because I have a I have a few things to say on it. I want to talk about the effect on the vocals because uh, you guys nailed it. And so I'm sure you were helping out a little bit, at least pushing buttons and whatnot. The sound on the vocals is great. It does sound like some kind of politician or candidate giving a speech out in public with that echo. You know, those yep. big stacks of speakers that would be yep. half a mile away. And, you know, with your laws of physics and the and the speed of sound and all that, that's what it's going to sound like to somebody in the audience. And I really appreciate that, that you guys took that those extra steps to make it sound like that. Really I mean, that, that's less, you know, doing, yeah. you know, having that concept and we found the way to make it sound like that, you know, with what we had, you know? Yeah. The other thing that he does really well is that stilted delivery that a lot of politicians do, especially the inexperienced ones that are trying yeah. to sound, you know, like they know what they're doing. Um, and they just sound like a robot and he sounds really robotic in a lot of places, you know? Fellow colleagues, it's great. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't sound like he cares. You know, he just sounds like he's trying to say a bunch of words to to mollify people or please people or just to win a vote. So damn, he's good. Yeah, I got to praise him big time on on how he put this all together for the vocals. The way I want to approach it is actually through the lens of propaganda because I get to teach it to kids, and then they go, "What?" And I go, "Yeah, that commercial wants you to feel a certain way by having the celebrity right. endorse the product or whatever." Right? When we look at our seven types of propaganda, he hits almost all of them <clears throat> using these these meaningless platitudes and and just these sayings. He says a lot without saying anything. And a lot of this stuff, Les, probably was just cribbing from speeches that he'd heard or probably just looking stuff up. Listen to a politician for two minutes. You could speak like one and then you'll want to kill yourself. But you could do it if you really wanted to. When we run down the list of the seven types of propaganda that I generally talk about with kids, it's a uh, Glittering generalities, of course, that's putting everything into big general terms and you're not actually saying anything. And the first two stanzas of this, of these lyrics really do a great job of that. It's kind of a masterclass in saying nothing. Convey the essence of our platform to you, a grand and noble audience. Also, there's some pandering there because of the grand and noble audience. But, he, you know, convey the essence of our platform. <laughs> Come on. It's bullshit. Uh, the second one is card stacking, which is showing all the negatives of something that you're against or all the positives of something you're for. So stacking the deck one way or another. People do this all the time. But he talks about uh, in these lyrics, uh, the youth today. He's talking about the problems with the youth today. <laughs> and I love that because that's always the problem. It's always the youth today. It could be 1997. It could be 2021. It could be 1897, which we'll get to in a little bit. The youth are always the problem. But card stacking, right? They're doing drugs. They're not believing what we believe, which is the right thing. So he's stacking the deck against the youth. So they're becoming the scapegoat, the problem. I don't know. This is a political speech. He's, you know, yeah. it's all generalities. Another common one is the plain folks approach, which is I'm just like you, which we don't hear too much in this one. But a big one is the idea of transfer, which is when we associate or are supposed to associate an image or an idea with something else. The young people in drugs is one. 
So somebody hearing the speech who's really into it would go, yeah, the young people, they're doing the drugs and that sort of thing. So, I, I mean, you, you got a few years on me, but, but you know, back in the late 60s, I'm sorry, with the, with the campus rebellions and all these, all these uh, like the Democratic National Convention in 68 and that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. that's when this really started happening. The radical left was being tied to things like marijuana and they were going, yeah, it's a bunch of right, right. drug, you know, drug addicted kids doing this. That was happening then and it's happened throughout history. But he, he does this here in the lyrics by quoting FDR because – FDR is not universally, but pretty widely seen as a as a good leader and an effective leader. So he's, you know, it reminds me of what FDR said. So hopefully people will go, yes, this politician quotes FDR. He must be good, too. We don't necessarily have a testimonial, which is another form of propaganda. But I do love the we want you at the start. And I don't know, is that from that same set of CDs that you got that they bought for Punchbowl? So yeah, because this is probably the only uh, track that has those kind the, of things. the crowd noise as it as it builds up. Yeah, and there's a yes, little indeed. bit in one channel of a chant of "We want you, we want you." The old <laughs> yeah, I would think so. Yeah, okay. It's just you got to go back to it if it was that big of a set. And they well, I mean, it was it. like trying to create the vibe, you know. And yep. like Les was on on the the pulpit, you know, giving a speech to open the record, you know. And so we had to find something to make it like he was on the pulpit in front yep. of a crowd, you know. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, man. The, the atmosphere is fantastic uh, throughout this one. You know, for as much as we're saying it's musically, there's not a ton going on and it's kind of a plotter, but there's there's a lot to dig into. A couple other things. The the other appeal that drives me crazy is the bandwagon one. You know, everybody else is doing it. So why don't you? But he does say about the youth, they will come around and embrace our philosophies and become model citizens. So he's mixing that transfer with the bandwagon thing. They'll get on board eventually. Um, and then the last one. I don't know that it happens in this one, but uh, in the in these lyrics, excuse me, but probably the most common propaganda tool is name calling. There's the the paranoia part, and really that's the only stanza that yeah. that that. Uh, and Frankie, I do want to hear your thoughts on this, but the paranoia stanza actually kind of falls flat for me because he's using all these other generalities, and then all of his which politicians do, and then all of his sudden he's saying, uh, you know, the person standing next to you may not be who they appear to be, so take precaution. But that's the Red Scare stuff from the 50s, um, that right. kind of that, thing, that's right? A, that's a direct quote from someone else's speech. Oh, it's got to be. Yeah. So it's just, you know, so, your neighbor could be a communist, so make sure you're right watching on, off, right on. you know, that yes. sort of thing. That's like almost name calling yeah. because anybody who, especially in the 50s, would know exactly what he's talking about. You know, mm-hmm. those goddamn Reds. So yeah. that that sort of thing. So anyway, just looking at it through that lens, Les does a fantastic job of patching together this speech from speeches that have been given over the years. And really, when you look at it, they say the same stuff every single time. Um, I'll get to it in a little bit. That might be the underlying theme of this whole. Oh, that's that's exactly what he's doing. He's mocking these politicians who say a lot, but actually say nothing and say the same things over and over again. And people cheer for it and eat it up. You know, and it ends with that grand God bless this. It's really cool that that you've laid out all these stages of that type of fodder and they all make sense to what Les is saying, utilizing in this moment to open the record, you know. It's yeah. awesome. Uh, it's just a really great takedown of uh, of that culture, and mm-hmm. but how that pandering works, and that's what's kind of disturbing, you know, in a social sense, <laughs> why why it works so well. But you know, you yeah. take a step back and you think about it, you go, yeah, this is this is what gets people going and gets people wanting to vote. All of or these things to hear work. The rest of the album. Yes, I, I hope Get so. Into the Brown album. Here it comes. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Frankie, I'm curious about your take on the lyrics too. Uh, you know, actually, that's my favorite part of the lyrics: the paranoia uh, verse. I really like the contrast that he makes between the first and the second line. Now that you're mentioning propaganda, it actually reminds me of like this vintage poster that I saw once, you know, around from, you know, from the Nazi regime mm-hmm. where you have two people talking on the bus and behind them are like two guys wearing a uniform. And it said something like, you know, be careful with your conversations because you never know who's listening. It reminds me of that kind of vintage stuff, which I find yeah. really cool. The last, the last verse, as history has shown, uh, they will come around. That part I find a little uh, exasperating because he, that I think that's the part where he he starts speaking even slower than he did in the previous verses. You know, it takes a while yes. for him to reach the last word in in, in that verse, so it it gets on your nerves a little. Um, yeah, overall, <laughs> you know, yeah, <laughs> overall on paper, yeah. <laughs> Overall, I think they, you know, they are really interesting lyrics on paper. Uh, they work great with the song, you know, and the tempo that it has. In a live setting, um, I think they 
kind of lost their impact because he was going through them so fast. It was like he was just reading from a list. Mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't the same. But on the record, uh, they they do sound quite compelling. And as you say, you know, they are pure satire. But you know, as mm -hmm. anything that Liz does with his lyrics, it, it really, really works. And it's kind of interesting, you know, to have an entire song devoted to this really obscure character from from Frizzle Fry from such a short song. Yeah. It makes you wonder, you know, what would happen if Liz were to develop further other obscure characters into other songs. I think it's, you know, Lyrically and musically, it's a really interesting piece of music, and I highly appreciate it. That's a great point. I'm glad you talked about that that propaganda around be careful what you say, because the first thing that came to my mind was loose lips sink ships. That's which what was, I was thinking. Yeah, yeah <laughs> that American propaganda during World War II. Same, same kind of thing. Yeah. You know, speaking of Brown album as a whole, it's a pretty collectible record in Primus history. The singles actually came out with artwork, which right. hadn't, you know, the promo singles, you know, Beef and, and Falls. They actually came out with artwork, which hadn't happened since Jerry was a race car driver. So that tells you, you know, they were even pushing the, the promos. Um, the record itself, as you know, as you mentioned, it appears to be like a candy wrap thing. Then you pull out the sleeve and it's like this completely golden jewel case. In Australia, for some reason, they omitted the golden jewel case, and you know it comes in a standard jewel case with an actual photo of the band on the front cover. Oh, so, yeah, so and, does the the Canadian repress yeah, exactly? Well. Yeah, exactly. And as for the vinyl itself, I mean, you have the original pressing, and then you have Music on Vinyl, which released uh, both a black version and a golden version, which is numbered. And then, you know, it was repressed uh, on orange vinyl for some strange reason. But the most interesting thing of all is the original pressing, which was given away by Clue Bastardo in the early days when the album came out. And it's actually signed by all three band members, but it also comes with a certificate of authenticity signed by Bob Cock. So <laughs> it's not... Yeah, it's, that might be in my record collection. I might that, have that. I mean, that's... That's probably the rarest and most valuable item from the Brown era. Wow. I have a bunch of promo singles that I don't think you have, Frankie. They're weird. I, I, I do have them. I mean, I got Falls, I got Beef, I got some promo versions of the album as well with different covers. Wow. God damn it. One of these days, I'm, I'm going to find something in my collection that you do not have yet. <laughs> I'm going to sell it to you for a million dollars. I got uh, I got lured to sign that Brown cover once with the like the photo of the band nice and uh he just said geez i had a pretty funny look going on back then <laughs> yeah <laughs> that yeah. sounds like lure <laughs> that's awesome it is it that's fascinating you know i don't i never really think about what it's going to look like what the album's going to look like in other countries but it's interesting that this one has so much variety in yeah its i think this was the era when it really started exploding with different versions and different covers and different this is and that's i mean it had happened over a decade before but yeah it really got to this feverish point of like collectibleness you know like yeah there's a different cover here there's a different cover there yeah but yeah. it was like they were they were purpose purposefully doing it not just unbeknownstly oh wow you get to canada and there's some different cover <laughs> of the record that you didn't know the canada record label had done that to your record you know yeah like they're purposely doing it at that point, you know. You know, it enhances the experience again because you're getting this this mood or this vibe from what looks like a a chocolate bar or a candy bar wrapper, and then you're opening up the wrapper, you know, for the the rich brown insides, which uh, you know the disc is brown, the the book it's almost all monochromatic brown. It's great. It's uh, the packaging all makes sense that way. Audio yeah, it's pretty. Too. It's pretty well. It's pretty well thought out <laughs> and very well put together. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that we didn't do promo stuff back then with Primus like we did with the Wonka tour with the chocolate bars, you know, because the whole setup of that whole Brown album was that it was a candy bar. You yeah. Know? Like, I wonder if that was floated and shot down or just not picked up by the record label who said, ah, no. The record didn't run out of the gate and the budget wasn't there. So that's it. You just yeah. get a picture of a candy bar as opposed to those wonka bars that sold like hotcakes oh, did they ever yeah, that was a that was oh, a great marketing move for sure oh holy moly <laughs> yeah 
There you go. Well, you I mean, I, shadow I, Frankie, I have a couple uh, <laughs> promo singly things, CD singles that look like a Hershey bar, like cover. And yeah. I, I think they were radio stuff. It wasn't released to the public. I yeah, have some of got those. Them. Yeah, yeah, got them. Of course you have them. <laughs> Mine are better because less breathe, breathed on them. Ah, Frankie, that's what you're missing. The, Some the, DNA. Yeah. O- ode to Claypool. Less air. <laughs> less uh, there's the next merch item, less air in a can. Less yes. Yeah. How, do you there guys you know go. about Jerry Air? You ever heard about that? Jerry Air? No. I had a friend who worked for the Grateful Dead <laughs> back in the, <laughs> the end, end era of the dead, like okay. kind of towards the end, and Jerry Garcia Band was playing at the Warfield. Maybe uh, would it be in the early 90s, right? When Jerry died in 96? 94, 95? 95. He would go into the, it was at the Warfield Theater in San Francisco. Jerry Garcia Band would be playing on stage. And he'd walk in there with two mason jars and wave them around while the band was playing and put caps on them. <laughs> and walk out the back door where all the fan, Grateful Deadheads are like clamoring. He'd go, okay. Jerry Air, twenty bucks, and he they immediately <laughs> sell two jars of air for twenty bucks. Jerry Air, Jerry Air. Oh, and it rolls right off. No the joke. I'm it not kidding, like dude. Air. This is like a real. This is for real. I've okay. seen shit like that on eBay. I believe you. Jerry Air. <laughs> yeah. So there's less air on my CDs, Frankie. Yeah. You don't have that. <laughs> hey, actually, he should go back to what they they used to do during the Frizzle Fry days, and he should he should can some air, but call it cup of smell. Oh God! No, you don't want that, dude. <laughs> no, no, don't can his farts, but just the air around him. But bring back the name Cup of Smell. It's great. Claypool's Cup of Smell. Claypool, there, done. It's alliterative. It works beautifully. Get rid of the C pop. I want to see Claypool's Cup of Smell. <laughs> <laughs> Re- redirect your resources, dude. Come on, Les. I need your help. Uh, well, you know, there's thankfully there's <laughs> fans like Frankie that will pay for a cup of smell. That's that's right. That's right. He's gonna get he's gonna get jar number one, <laughs> one of one. He'll get the prototype signed, signed by Soya. Sign- <laughs> <laughs> and it just say thanks, sucker. Uh, all right. So before we get way too far off, which I could argue that we did, uh, I I want to do this for every track on the Brown album. And I want to make a connection to 1897, given that this record sounds like that's about when it was actually recorded uh, with all the overdriven craziness that we're hearing. So the connection, of course, we have a politician making a speech, the return of Silington Willoughby. So I went and looked up uh, any speeches from 1897. And of course, William McKinley was inaugurated in 1897 after winning re-election in 1896. And so I'm going to read a couple of portions from his inaugural speech in 1897, and you tell me if it's the same shit in a different century. Go, going back to the propaganda lens, he says, and I'm, this is a direct, direct quote, March 4th, 1897. It is inspiring, too, to remember that no great emergency in the 108 years of our eventful national life has ever arisen that has not been met with wisdom and courage by the American people, with fidelity to their best interests and highest destiny, and to the honor of the American name. Blech. Once again, glittering generalities, a lot of pandering. Funny, though, he, uh, when he says, uh, you know, not met with wisdom and courage, was he alive during the 1893 uh, stock market panic that uh, destroyed the economy for a few years and was brought, uh, brought on by those rich speculators that were playing with other people's money? I think he was there. Same, same crap, man. It's, it's terrible. This is, you could pull stuff straight from the 1897 inaugural speech by McKinley and then just plop it into the return of Southington Willoughby and it wouldn't change a thing because it's all the same propaganda devices from 125 years ago. That's kind of the point I was trying to make. Not, I'm not trying to be edgy. I don't do that anymore. You know, we're not going to be like shitting on the floor and saying, ta-da, like Frankie wants to do. But, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, there's a lot going on there, man. So there's your 1897 connection. I hope it didn't hurt too much. Much gaslighting going on. Oh, yes. And, you know, just a year later, uh, he got dragged into the Spanish-American War, McKinley did. He didn't really oppose it that hard, even though in his speech he said, we have cherished the policy of non-interference with affairs of foreign governments. A year later, well, let's fight the Spanish. (laughs) Let's do it. (laughs) Gee whiz. The USS Maine was an inside job. Okay, now, uh, a couple other things here. Frankie, we actually have a couple of 
covers, and I know that you're familiar with one of them, but are you familiar right. with the other one that I've selected here? So he is running away. He doesn't want to hear it. No, I think that's going to be a surprise for me. I think Excellent. I'm only familiar with one. Okay, so I'm going to play portions of two, count them, two covers of The Return of Sodlington Willoughby. I can't believe I'm saying this. There are two different people out there that decided to do some kind of arrangement or cover of this Primus track. Yeah, that's pretty mind-blowing. It's bizarre. Yet no covers of Space Farm yet. Life, I need you to get on that. Can you help us out, <laughs> I'll see what I can do. All right, man. Sweet. Thanks. But uh, And I do want to hear what you think also about the the music on these tracks. It's interesting that you that you describe the cover version as bizarre, Josh, because this is one instance where in English, bizarre equals weird, unusual, or strange. Yeah. In Spanish, people tend to use the word incorrectly all the time to convey the same thing. But actually, in Spanish, bizarre means brave. So people use it wrong all the time. But in this case, I think it's a spot on because a Sathit and Willoughby cover is both strange and brave. Oh, no doubt. I didn't know that, Frankie, that it means brave. Is that is that more of an archaic definition and not an yeah. everyday one? Yeah, right on. <laughs> it mutated <laughs> from brave to strange and out of the ordinary. Huh. Exactly. All right, Soy, are you ready to hear uh, a yes. couple of... Uh, Sorry. I don't know. I, I am actually amazed that you have found those. That's amazing. You guys are amazing. <laughs> All right. That's, so this that's a sarcastic uh, description. I was I was taking it genuinely. <laughs> well, now I'm deflated. Uh, all right. So our first cover is an arrangement by a young man named Anthony Paul Garcia, not our Anthony Garcia, a different guy. Uh, it's called the Now Here Ensemble, and this is a reinterpretation and arrangement. All right. This is about thirty seconds of that. Clearly not Primus. Kind of cool. That was amazing. I hadn't heard that. That's some residence going on right there. Yeah. Oh, yeah, residence yeah. meets uh, Raymond Scott or something. Wow. That's amazing. Easy to find. That's just search for the returning Southern Willoughby cover, and it's one of the first ones to show up. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. I seriously do not think that anybody would have thought that was a Primus song if they heard it. Yes, without having heard it before, the Primus track before. Absolutely. It doesn't sound really anything like it, although I think I hear some of those tritones in there with the different instruments. But I, I'm I'm vibing with you on that one, man. It's cool. That is a bizarre outtake. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. Wait till you hear the whole thing. It's It goes places. <laughs> it's something. As uh, Well, I'm glad you're amazed by that one because this one's a, a, a little more traditional. It's got uh, two bass guitars and two guitars, and so there's a lot going on. Uh, with this one, and it's another, I would say, imaginative arrangement. So we'll get about 25 seconds of this one. I love all the wailiness of the guitars. Yeah, that's pretty cool. That one sounds legit. The it's bass pretty cool. Tone is amazing. Life was this secretly you? I really don't want to. <laughs> no, anything. but I've I've watched that clip before. It's funny. Oh, you know that I one? Like, okay. I like what he does with it. He kind of adds some extra guitar stuff to it. He's not uh, sliding up on the fretboard uh, for that for that hammer on part with his index finger or any right hand fingers for that matter. He's just tapping the strings with the side of the pick uh, to yeah. get that similar sound. Yeah, I mean, that works, too. You can tap with a pick. But... Yeah, yeah. It looks like a Larry-type thing. <laughs> As we said before, for something that kind of plods along and is different for Primus with this A part and this B part and this stilted speech, people are finding stuff in there that they like and, and turning it into something. I think that's what's interesting about this track. It's not so compact and primacy that you can't do anything else with it except try to straight cover it. 
like a Tommy the Cat or something like that. This one's a little more open to interpretation. I think it's it's more importantly awesome that people find these oddball tracks and make what, what would you say like that? homage? Yeah, paying homage. Yeah, and not just doing okay, Tommy the Cat or Jerry's a race car driver. <laughs> They're finding the the really deep cuts and like finding a really cool thing in that, and that's what's really unique about the song. Speaking of. Uh, something in this song. Let's uh, let's hear a live version from Primus. What do you say, mm-hmm. Frankie? Do you want to? Yeah, let's check it out. Inter- interesting show because Sathington, the return of Sathington Willoughby opened the second set, which they kind of used it that way huh. during the the second set. You know, for a few performances. I guess you're gonna notice straight away what we were discussing about the speed. You know that it's really up tempo compared to the studio recording, and Liz is going over the lyrics really quickly. But still, the tone is pretty great. So let's check it out. I will never tire of Les using the envelope filter live. Oh, that's where we diverge, my friend. I really enjoy it. I like any and all effects. I don't know if it works for me in this situation. I agree with Josh. Well, it was probably, it was the closest thing to whatever modulation effect was on the studio version, I guess. I could see that being a matter of convenience for him to say, well, I can just use the envelope for this. We have this Primus doing this. We have people arranging it and covering it in creative and innovative ways. Uh, we have this cool speech that lampoons slash satirizes politicians of all stripes, of all eras. This is a pretty complete tune now that we've really run the gamut with it. So, you know, I was always a fan of it before, but I think I appreciate it even more now. Yeah. Final thoughts? <laughs> the first time I heard this song, with my couple of friends and I had listened to the hell out of Punchbowl. I bought the Brown album and I... I think we were all expecting something along that line, Mm -hmm. and we kind of saved it for a a night where we consumed some, uh, I guess you could say, grapevine tablets. (laughs) LSD. Yeah, something like that. It was right when we were at that moment and just like totally blew my mind. I felt like I was, you know, at some event, not necessarily a concert, but like the crowd noise building up and then, yeah. So was the album good on LSD? Oh, it's... It was crazy, especially, you know, the first track, like I said, kind of primed you up for it. And then mm-hmm. when Fisticuff starts, it was just like this nasty, dirty <laughs> thing I wasn't expecting to hear. And it was awesome. I'm pretty uh, amazed at how many people on our comment threads, Josh and Frankie, that say this is their absolute favorite Primus record ever. And it was a weird moment for Primus, you know, mm-hmm. even me going through the recordings of many of the records, this was a trippy moment. I haven't listened to it in a long time, but I remember listening to it back when I did again and again, trying to like listen to it and go, Oh man, this is such a bizarre sound and such a bizarre <laughs> moment of the band. You know? Yeah. Like, I don't ever think like this was the greatest moment. And so many fans really love this record, you know? And right. This opening track, hearing it today going oh wow that that's the first song in the rap. <laughs> holy shit i forgot it's this <laughs> yeah what a great track to go over again part of that really loyal brown album contingent is they went so far afield with the sound and did something completely yeah. different and yeah. totally we blew went left field on that one for yeah. sure definitely hold it to a high regard i don't like to play favorites but right Southington Willoughby, I said this to you a while back, but I'll say it to you again. You've been tracked. Life, thank you for helping us with that, by the way. Frankie, Soya, get your boxing gloves, because next time we're going to the gym. Man. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us for, man, gosh, I mean, we're into the Brown Album now. It feels great. Uh, Life, once again, thank you. Dead Perspective on YouTube, you can see a bajillion shows. Later days. God bless this great podcast. Forgot something, Soya. Oh, holy shit. Life, get your bass on. <laughs> Four string. All right. Good choice. Looking good. Let's hear it. Let's hear Tommy the Cat. 
All right, it's been a while, but uh, no, I don't want to hear no excuses. That's her. <laughs> been a long time decent <laughs> i'm gonna give you a decent a d minus <laughs> as humans we're naturally driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed when i was looking to hire someone it was so slow and overwhelming I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.